The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Orson Welles in a Snuggy edition. It's Wednesday, November 7th, 2018. On today's show, Orson Welles spent years, years and years trying to finance and shoot and finish a movie called The Other Side of the Wind. Netflix has made a documentary about it and finished the film, and probably we watched both. Uh, and then Robin with a Y, the Swedish dance pop authoress has a new record we discuss with slate's music critic carl wilson and finally a director makes a hit movie after which he gets a blank check it's a familiar pattern in hollywood history and there's a podcast about it and i will just segue right into introducing our um fill-in for julia this week david sims is the co-host of blank check and he's the film critic for the atlantic hey david welcome to our show hi thank you for having me guys yeah, thanks a lot for coming in. Um, and of course, Dana Stevens is film critic of uh, Slate.com. Hey, hey, Dana. Greetings, Stephen. I'm filling Julia's robot role. <laughs> Weird fun fact about today's show is we're angsty about an ambiguity and, and undetermined outcome that are um, that is now determined for our listeners. So we're going to be angsty, and they hopefully won't be. About election day, you mean? Right. Yeah, it's dramatic yeah. irony. They all know something yep. that we don't know as they listen. It's like, exactly. It's like the uh, episode of Mad Men. Okay, there is no quick way to do justice to either Orson Welles, the giant of American cinema, nor his last great passion project, the uh, until recently incomplete, uh, the other side of the wind. But imagine Wells nearing the end of his life and career, a gigantic figure in both senses. He's both. Sh- an American Shakespeare containing the cosmos in, in in his own sensibility in a way. And part Falstaff was just gigantic, comical, uh, self-loving, larger-than-life uh, figure of p- pure charisma. And he wants to make a movie to end all movies, a send-up of new Hollywood and European art cinema. It's a movie within a movie. It's a mockumentary. Um, it stars John Huston, his one arguably, he thought, certainly one peer in uh, in Hollywood. And Peter Bogdanovich, at the time, his maybe one plausible heir. Uh, and on and on and on. If I start, I won't be able to stop. I think what we need to do is listen to a clip, and then we will discuss not only the other side of the wind, but the, uh, the documentary Netflix has made about it called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Clip away. Uh, well, here it is, the gospel according to Jake. God the Father is an old Jew invented by a lot of other old Jews in a hopeless attempt to put down the Jewish mother. (laughs) That's what he says the whole new scene's about, you know, everything. Even his movie. Uh, what's that about the movie? You mean the one We don't talk about the movie. Uh, try the Baron here. Under torture, he might squeal a little. He writes scripts. So Mr. Hannaford likes to say. Please, don't pretend to be stupid. Now, you're supposed to be the brainy one in this club or this, I don't know, this clan, whatever it is you it's call it. It's a highly informal organization, lady. The tape that we were hearing, the subject is God. Is he a member? She. We're all ruled by the wind, aren't we, lady? So if uh, the Lord is a lady and God's will is her will, then we can all relax and stop expecting the universe to be logical. You heard the man, lady. We're right back where we started. Back to Mama. Now that's. Oh, man. Okay, Dana, I'm going to start with you. This movie is an insane potpourri. I mean, the one thing I might lead you with a little bit here is listeners, people who haven't seen it yet, they may be better off starting with the documentary. Am I right? Am I wrong? I you don't know. I was torn about this. I actually was tweeting back and forth with some other critics who were watching it, of course, on opening night, you know, when they dropped it on Netflix last Friday. And uh, and some people were saying documentary first because you can put it in context. Ultimately, I started the documentary and then realized I don't want to know this much. And after about 10 minutes, I reverted back and saw the movie. What did you do first, David? I did this. I was also uh, weighing which way to go. And I I, I started the movie, sort of paused it, being like, wait, what is going on? But then resolutely, I, I powered through, watched the documentary, and then went back. To, I did docu- uh, movie, doc, movie. I watched the movie again after the doc. I see, a sandwich. Just with a little more, you know, having having now marinated on what made it happen or things like that. Yeah. But 
I don't have a strong recommendation either, either way. way. Yeah, yeah, because you're going to go in at any rate knowing that it's uh it's a crazy mishmash that I mean this is this is what I'm going to start off my my commentary on that is not really an Orson Welles movie in some sure. way. I mean, I feel like the documentary which we can get to later does not grapple nearly enough with the fact that there were 100 hours of footage that had only been put together in a very rough way by yeah. Wells and that some people who are somewhat vaguely defined in the in the Morgan Neville documentary had to impose their own vision on what this 100 hours was going to be how would it be turned into a 2 hour narrative and i feel like this is being unproblematically presented by Netflix. I mean, you know, you can see the advertising potential in that, but they're sure. presenting it as the lost Orson Welles movie when in fact, I have no doubt that Orson Welles would have despised that documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one, it's very Wells with all the quick cuts and the sort of montage like it's yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. sort of We can get to homage, yeah, we can get right. to it later, but I mean, I feel like he would have despised that documentary right. because of the the knowledge that it kind of posits about him, right? Because it tries to frame him in a way that I think he would have hated to be framed. I think Bogdanovich in, in an interview in the documentary even says something like that. Um, that he was always trying to escape, you know, being summarized or personified. But I also wonder, would Orson Welles have hated this cut of the, his movie and the fact that it was brought out at this time? I'm just not quite clear on the fact, and I don't think the coverage has made it extremely clear why this is happening now when when the footage has existed since whatever, since Orson Welles died in 1985, <laughs> right, right? Right, right. And, and who is the driving force behind putting it together. I know that there's a, a contemporary editor, Bob Murawski, who went in and he's credited as the editor along with Wells. But I still feel like there has to be an authorial voice that's choosing sure. each of these cuts and the length and, of each of these cuts. And who is it? Yeah. yeah. But, but David, this raises an interesting question, which is the thesis, if I get it right, of the documentary, such as, there, you know, such, such as it is, by the end of it is that maybe Wells wanted the movie to be so open, so open form that it was unfinished, and he even goes on to suggest that, that people kind of talking about the movie is the movie. I mean, there's this sort of grand deconstructive gesture, sort of by Wells himself in archival footage, saying that this thing was truest to itself, incomplete. And then they give you the complete film side by side with it. I mean, it's kind of an odd way of going about it. And it does seem I know that Wells was out of money a lot of the time and that it wasn't he wasn't just uh, uh, facing off against himself as he was working on this movie for 10 years and never completing it. But there is something about that. He was always rolling the ball up the hill, but the hill there was no summit at the top. Like maybe that was part of this project to him was that it was something he could always sort of return to and tinker and mess around with. And and that's certainly part of the content of this project. Right. I mean, we get into this, as Morgan Neville, the director of the documentary, put it, it's a matryoshka doll of movies, right? right? I mean, it's it's a movie by a filmmaker that was never finished about a filmmaker who makes a movie that was never finished. So we should probably talk about what happens in the actual movie called The Other Side of the Wind, which is, in fact, two movies called The Other Side of the Wind because it <laughs> contains a film within a film by the same title. Right. All right. That was confusing enough David, can you clarify some? I guess so. I mean, it's uh, the, the the film Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind is about a an aging filmmaker played by uh, Jack Houston. John Houston. John Houston. Uh, well, my, to was his he friends, known as he Jack? was Jack. Was he? No, no, it's played by John Houston. <laughs> um, um, who oh, it's going to take has, me a second to stop off. <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> who has made this sort of Antonioni-esque uh, Euro sort of schlocky art film with a lot of nudity and sort of uh, long silent uh, walking around and takes and things that are is sort of baffling to his old Hollywood pals. He's mixing with the new Hollywood pals and there's a big party that For his is, 70th birthday. Right. That is uh, his last day on earth, we know. We're told, you know, in, as the movie begins in voiceover by Peter Bogdanovich, who also mentions cell phones. And Peter Bogdanovich is playing uh, this this director's sort of young protege as Bogdanovich was Wells's protege. If I can just jump oh in and gosh. say there's a thing that Wells himself didn't didn't uh, ask for. Right? right. There's this right. moment talking about computers and cell phones. It's the modern day Peter that, Bogdanovich that was, who's in his 70s doing a voiceover. I'm not saying that I it's a bad way to start the movie, but thrown. it was not a choice that Wells made. So No, Wells wasn't thinking too hard about cell phones or, or Netflix in 1970 whenever when he whenever he was, he was making these movies. And so it's it's a sort of the the last day in this grand old director's life 
as he's trying to work on this movie. I get, I'm trying to summarize the plot, and I'm uh, I'm failing. Well, let miserably, me let me I just feel. jump in and at least summarize the feeling, and maybe you sure. guys can jump in and, and and contribute to this too. So, what it feels like when you're watching the other side of the wind, and we'll leave aside for the moment the question of authenticity and whether this is what Wells intended. But the experience is this um, very layered and kind of jumbled experience that is extremely. Um, this this sounds like a negative word, but I don't necessarily mean it that way. It's inconsistent in tone. It's constantly varying and heterogeneous in tone, right? So there's bits that are shot in 16 millimeter, in 8 millimeter, in black and white. Um, in, and then the film within a film, almost to a frame, is this perfectly composed, beautifully lit, 35 millimeter, as you say, almost a parody of an Antonioni-style European art film. Right. And part of that, those differences in in look and feel have to do with budgetary constraints and the fact it was being made at wildly different times as the documentary covers. It was made over the course of six years. Right. And people were dropping out of the project and storming off the set. And he had to recast that Bogdanovich role. The role was going to be Rich Little. It was going right? to be Rich yeah, Little, right. the impressionist, right, who is right. now just in, a, in one little scene as a party guest. Um, and so. All of that jumbling happens on the screen before you, um, but I have to say it is pretty effectively woven into some kind of story at, with the conceit that these different looking bits of film footage all come from the paparazzi that are constantly surrounding him and the students that are asking him pretentious questions, as you heard in that clip, and that all of these people are recording this famous director Jack Hannaford, is that his name? Jack Hannaford. Uh, wait, no, wait, is it Jack? Because I don't want to get... I don't <laughs> no, wanna, it's Jake Jack. Hannaford. Jake, Jake Hannaford. <laughs> See? Jack to his friends. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Steve, what, what, how did you feel about that um, that jumbling? I mean, you could you could experience that as something really challenging and kind of pleasurable, but it is, it's, it's a little bit um, alienating. Right. Well, in the documentary, he says that that he he had been, I mean, he doesn't use the word painterly, but that he composed his frame with the utmost care in his previous films. And he wanted this one to be a kind of porous and open frame. Uh, and that fits in with the feel and the theme of the, of the movie. And and in that sense, I mean, it's just a historic, it's a historical document more than it is a, in any sense, a cogent work of art. It's lack of cogency was, was what it was about in some ways. But I just want to, I made a list as I went along of like any one of these would be a huge alarm bell in any movie, and they're all true of this one. There's no script. It contains a film within a film. Uh, it, he says, Wells himself says, it's a movie about death. Uh, when asked what the other side of the wind might mean, he said, life, you never want to answer a question with either life or death as the answer. Uh, it, it, start, it starred his own best friend as his alter ego. It sends up uh, not only Hollywood movies, but European movies. We talked about that. It stars your mistress. That's a big... I mean, even Citizen Kane tells you that's a bad song. Yeah, we have not even <laughs> mentioned true. Oya. So Oya Kodar, oh, yeah. who was Wells' partner at the end Long of his time life. Long-time companion, I think, yeah. right? Like for several, many years. Yeah. And she's also the co She's the, the credited co-writer as this. Co-writer she never speaks a film. word. She appears only as the star of the film within a film and sort of sometimes on the on the periphery of the party. Yeah, she is in the Yeah, exactly. Co-author of uh, unscripted film uh, <laughs> features cameos by other film directors. The cinematographer is the cinematographer who worked with Ed Wood. Uh, the budget is supplied by the Shah of Iran. So when you add all that up, I, I came out of this, you know, we've talked on this show about sort of creative diptychs, like you're sort of a Tolstoy person or a Dostoevsky person, a Lennon or a McCartney person, Uptai Karoth, whatever. I finally came, I came up with another diptych, which is Wells or Billy Wilder. I walked away team Billy Wilder. I mean, I don't mean to be, I, I think it's an incredible experience to watch it and to watch the documentary, even though the documentary is, is preposterously overly self-consciously done, uh, I mean, I learned a lot about Wells, and Wells is a totally captivating figure, but he was breathing in the oxygen only of his own mythology by the time he made this movie, and and that, at the end, to me, was just totally oppressive. There is something oppressive about this movie, no question. I mean, and it is, in a way about a moment when cinema was, I mean, you know about more about this than me, Steve, about New Hollywood in a moment when cinema was, as Wells had known it and had come from, was kind of moribund. And the movie really plays that out with these two casts, essentially. There's the cast of old Hollywood kind of dinosaurs, you know, who, who hang around and question what this arty movie is about and are often filmed in black and white so that it looks like an old Orson Welles movie. And in that group, you have who? Edmund O'Brien, Mercedes McCambridge, George Jessel, an old vaudeville star. Like, there's people from literally the first quarter of the 20th century stars it mixed in with all these people like Bogdanovich, Dennis Hopper, uh, who are some of the, the new cinema people? Um, there? Claude Chabrol uh, Henry is a character. Jacklin, right? right? Yeah. yeah. 
And so it's like the acolytes on one side, you know, are oppressive in one way that we hear in that scene that they're all kind of pretentiously hovering over the text, trying to bring out the Freudian meanings. And there's all kinds of really, really bad kind of psychoanalytic phallic imagery and stuff. Um, that's just and so there's dated also now. Swipes, yeah, swipes yes. at Pauline Kael, who had published More a than giant swipes. essay. Yeah, there's a, well, there's a character who's a proxy for Pauline Kael, played by Susan Strasberg, daughter right. of Lee Strasberg. More than swipes is inspired by the Kael essay on um, on Citizen Kane, where she all but accuses him of plagiarizing the movie from Mankiewicz. Right. So he's got this 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 proxy for Pauline Kael, who's just a, a sort of an awful character although mm-hmm. in in our sort of in our modern age she comes off better than a lot of the uh, the men in the story she does and also g- given what a low bar there is for uh representation of film critics in films she at yeah, least, you know, she's that's sort of true. poised and intelligent you know compared to uh insert i don't know the the, the critic and birdman or i'm trying to think of like uh, nasty yeah, no, critics in movies one. right yeah, sub species of subhuman, basically. But, but still, she does get clocked in the face at one point, which uh, feels a little, uh, uh, a little two pointed. Yeah, that's pretty harsh, David. I want to hear. I want to hear. Are you at all tempted to make a defense of this movie as a movie, or or more as a a curiosity? I mean, that's a good question. To me, it did feel a little uh, tough to evaluate as like one of 2018's films, like. I suppose, tech, you know, this is in theaters this year. Shouldn't I be viewing this and thinking, like, is this going to make my uh, my top ten this year? And that just sort of feels ludicrous because it does feel not like a museum piece exactly, but like this uh, this fascinating, like, it's like only one part of a, a project that you have to consider from a few angles. And the documentary is another part, but there's a sort of a third part that I wanted to know more about. Like, which the documentary should have covered. I mean, if I can get to the documentary really for a second, right. it's directed by Morgan Neville, who's right. great. He made this year's runaway success, the... the Mr. Rogers doc. Right. He made an Oscar-winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, mm-hmm. that I think we've talked about on this show. Um, he made The Best of Enemies, I remember, I think. Yeah, were, I mean, yeah, he's yeah. he's like the top of the profession, and I see why Netflix called him in to do this. But his documentary has a major, major lacuna, which is that it doesn't talk about exactly the thing I mentioned earlier, like what happened to the footage in between the death of Orson Welles and his main collaborator on this project. And and now, and, and you know, who sat down with this footage and decided to do what they did with it? That missing from the documentary, to me, makes it a, a deeply flawed documentary. It also has this framing device with Alan Cumming being reflected mm. in different computer <laughs> screens that, right. that really <laughs> actually reminds me of that joke John Stewart used to do where the camera angle would change and he would turn around really <laughs> artificially to address, like, the second camera. It feels that fake. Anyway, I, I strongly disliked this documentary, although you do learn something about what happened between 1970 and 1976 in the making of the movie. Sure. You learn right. a lot. You don't learn, yeah. Jack, anything about what happened after that, which right. is what you right. really need to know to evaluate the document before you. Right. Yeah, and also you learn, I'd love to hear both of you speak to this, but you also learn that the extent to which Wells not only didn't get a blank check, he got fucked repeatedly by Hollywood because they saw him as an uh, ambitious maverick, you know, kind of high on his own supply uh, and uh, a waste of money. And so he was just constantly, constantly begging for, and it was this incredible discrepancy between the kind of po-faced reverence they showed him at like AFI banquets for having made, obviously, Citizen Kane, Lady from Shanghai and Touch of Evil, on and on and on, but mostly Citizen Kane and a complete uh, reluctance to show him any money at all. Yeah, I mean, one thing, the documentary was a fun watch as a sort of Wells homage and the first chunk of it, which is more focused on what you're talking about, his his constant struggles to uh, get projects made the way he wanted them to get made is is sort of like a decent potted history of like Orson Welles's Hollywood career and European career. And the documentary does make that point that this movie feels reactive to, you know, the, the, the European movies that are coming across the shore in the 60s where Wells is sort of regarding them with like, wait, they, they, they're they getting to do this now and I never got to do this? Yeah. Like, what, what the mm-hmm. heck's going on? Mm-hmm. The same thing with the sexual frankness of this right, movie, right? right. Which Wells yeah. could never have done, but this movie is dirty as hell. Like, it's, it's got some scenes that are uh, that are hard R's, put it oh, that sure. way. Sure, and, and it... The and scene the, in the car, oh my God. And exactly, and this, so it... I appreciated like the other side of the wind as again this sort of like this interesting artifact uh, Wells sort of maybe finally busting out of the uh, constraints that had been uh, imposed on him for almost his entire career and 
and almost acting out like there's something babyish about it, which I enjoyed. Like, I, I, I like the childishness of him being like, I, I get to play in this sandbox now. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as, as you said, Dana, like there, there's there's I want to know how this footage was assembled. I want to know about like Frank Marshall, who I think uh, was was someone who pioneered uh, or who spearheaded getting it. Uh, onto Netflix, like I, I want to know how they they confronted all of this footage and and got it to the finish line. Yeah, without that, I feel like Steve, in answer to your question, is it an artifact or a movie? It's kind of more of an artifact. I mean, right. if you are a cinephile, it's an incredibly fascinating artifact, and I'm glad it's out there. But the way that it's being presented by the documentary and just by the kind of um, unquestioned crediting of the people behind it makes it a little bit suspect to me as as an Orson Welles movie. Mm-hmm. But okay. can I also just push back on your Wells versus Wilder diptych? I just think oh my that god, it's that's, there that's for completely you to... artificial. I mean, obviously, <laughs> totally. it's, 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 it's sort of like saying I I like the pilot who wasn't shot down or, or something. I mean, <laughs> Billy Wilder was a was a success. He worked within the system, right? Uh-huh. He knew he uh-huh. sort of knew how to budget his resources. No, and I get it. That's where to push the but, envelope a little bit no, or of, do something like go go ahead. I'm right, sorry. like yeah. he didn't. He his career obviously is not this no, kind of, of grand shipwreck. So I, I'm not saying that you can't love Billy Wilder's films more. You absolutely can. You can dismiss Orson Welles out of hand if you want, but I just don't think that that's a fair parallel to draw. Of course, it's totally unfair, and it's uh, facile in the, in the, to the nth degree. That's the point of it. Is, is, but, but, but the only idea that I would defend is that it's a fun construct for trying to understand what kind of person you are. You, I, you know, I don't know, whatever, fuck it. I can't defend it. But <laughs> what we've talked about, we've talked about this this is our passion project. It's become about life and death itself in a way. But uh, anyway, it's the other side of the wind is the um, is the name of the Wells film that's been sort of completed, and um, and they'll love me when I'm dead is the documentary. Okay, before we go any further, Dana, I'm sure that you've got some business. What do you What do you have? Really, just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment today, which is going to be based on David Sims podcast, Blank Check, which is all about directors who get blank checks, a director who makes a big, successful Hollywood movie and then gets to make a passion project, which is sometimes weird, disappointing and unexpected swerve in his career or her career. So we're going to spin out from that idea in our Slate Plus segment and just talk about which directors we would like to see get a second chance, living or dead. It's just going to be one of those fun shoot the breeze Slate Pluses. I'm excited for it. Um, Slate Plus, if you don't know about it, is Slate's membership program, and it's a way to support the magazine. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gap Fest and all of your other favorite Slate podcasts. And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and many other benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, on with the show, Steve. Robin with a Y has come out with her first record in eight years, and this absolutely lit up my Twitter uh, for reasons that I didn't understand. So uh, we're exploring further. I craved another immersion in the salty springs of that unique Robin feeling, wrote Carl Wilson in his uh, summary of the album, his review of the album on Slate. Chilly at the surface, but warming underneath music about taking such full possession of your own sadness that it transports you to unsuspected joys. Uh, Carl, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I, I want you to know that, that that actually does describe to a T my experience of listening to Robin with a Y. Let's start with the word crave. So there was this hiatus. Uh, she's come back with a new album and you craved more material from her. For those listeners of our listeners who, like me, really don't have much of a deep background in Robin with a Y's music, why? what were you craving? What were you missing? Why is this a big deal she's back? Well, um... Robin's uh, last album, Body Talk, which came out um, as a series of EPs and then was gathered together um, as an album in 2010, was full of um, really indelible um, dance songs that were also songs of heartbreak, um, that all of them were kind of created an addictive effect. And they've come back and circled around in the culture over the time since then. Songs like Dancing on My Own, particularly, um, which has surfaced on a lot of TV soundtracks. Um, There's a memorable scene from an early season of Girls where Hannah 
breaks out into a frenzied dance to dancing on my own in her bedroom um, that really sort of conveyed that Robin feeling, um, this sort of sense of desperation, but at the same time being swept up um, by the beat. And because that music has been circulating and become kind of um, staple in the past seven, eight years, um, that sense that there would be more, um, and at the time she was very prolific, was unanswered in the past eight years because Robin um, went through a series of personal difficulties. Um, she lost Christian Falk, who was a producer who'd worked with her from early on when she was a teen pop star. Um, and she also went through relationship problems um, with a boyfriend who she's since reunited with, but was broken up with for a few years. And so she retreated um, basically to go into psychoanalysis for um, a period of time and um, put out a few bits of collaborative music with um, dance producers on several EPs um, in 2014 to 2017. So when hints started to emerge in the past year um, that a new album was coming, the anticipation has been building. And, um, and it was finally answered this week with this new album, Honey, which has a different feeling, a, a feeling that reflects those years of introspection and um, sort of self-care over this period of time. And it's a less insistent, less driving album and one that's more deep and rich in texture, um, but still has many of the same qualities. That combination of pleasure and pain is, if anything, um, just heightened on the new record. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we, before we go any further, why don't we listen to some, like a really distinctive track from old Robin. Why don't you, why don't you pick one for us? Yeah, well, why don't we go back to, there was a sort of important break that happened between her first attempt um, being marketed by major labels. And then at one point she broke off on her own and decided that this was a sort of dissatisfying way to pursue her career and put out this album just called Robin um, in 2005. Um, the music took a couple of years to reach us in North America, um, but the song Be Mine is probably the most iconic of that period. So you can hear in that song the sort of um, Swedish ice queen tone of her voice in a way, but that combined with that kind of real um, willingness to go all the way emotionally. And that's the kind of paradox that I think has always been magical about her. Carl, since we went back in time and listened to that old track, I have a question about production. And I don't even know how to frame this question because I'm bad at even the terms of, of music production. But what has changed between then and now that her new album sounds so much uh, I don't know how to describe this. I don't mean it in a bad way, but less clean than that. It's got like a lot more layers of sound and more electronic sound. And has she changed producers? Has she does she produce her own songs? How does that work? She's producing herself more than she ever has before on this album. And part of what she's been doing during the interim has been training herself more in production. But she tends to work with a small handful of um, Swedish producers um, and dance producers. And yeah, there is a slightly um, different configuration of people here than there was at that point. But I think it's also a very deliberate thing. And talking about layering is right. Um, at that point, when at, at the time of songs like Be Mine, you could really hear there was the synthesizer, there was her voice, there was the beats. Um, and then they'll, you know, on, on Be Mine, there's a string component. And those parts are all sort of cleanly delineated and they're all falling in a very sort of four on the floor way. Whereas on this album, the beats are, yes, more layered and there's, there's different sort of counterpoint happening in the music in a, in a different style than did in her early work. Can you think of a sample we could listen to from the new album that, that shows that? Um, I think probably the title track, Honey, is, is the most easily recognizable of that.
I love Robin. Uh, I was in college in England when her self-titled album that uh, B minus from came out. And I remember that being a staple for me that year. Um, I guess, yeah, for some reason, I guess she hit in Britain first before cresting in America. Um, uh, but I've, I've always loved how bittersweet she is and how melancholy her songs are. And so I was kind of stunned that she somehow <laughs> like has plumbed new depths of melancholy with this <laughs> album. Like I, I've always loved how propulsive her songs are, even when they're about the inevitability of sadness or, you know, how any relationship might be doomed to die or things like that. And I I turned this album on and I will admit, like, initially I was sort of like, where where are the uh, the bangers, you know, to uh, to use the nomenclature? Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of yeah. just heard it. I feel like the only right. the only real banger. one that, that hops out as a banger is this Honey, the title track, which is a beautiful song. I mean, it's incredible. I, it is. I, I, I do like that. It's been growing on me very nicely. I've been enjoying uh, putting it on uh, as I'm, it's a good headphone album. Very good sort of like soundscapey uh Walking around in the in the rain, making album. your lonely soundtrack for your life. Yes, yeah. Um, but it definitely was more of a grower than uh, her 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 past few uh, records were for me. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's um, really distinct about this album. And some fans did react with disappointment initially, and I found it a little difficult to get into at first, um, seeking that immediate adrenaline rush. Um, hit from from Robin's style but really as I listened to it I found that more and more there was this other kind of deeper rhythm that I was really I can only describe as a kind of body rocking rhythm and it really does kind of have that connotation with self-soothing that the story behind the album suggests that perhaps this music was made as a sort of self-healing exercise and as I listened to it I could really get deeper and deeper into that sort of push and pull that she does here rather than that sort of driving forward, accelerating feeling, that sort of transporting feeling. This is really an album about centering yourself back in yourself. And it still has a lot of playfulness and, um, and humor along the way, which she always does. But it, um, but it really, yeah, it's a, it's a more of a deep sitting in yourself album. And, you know, it's an album, you know, Body Talk, those songs were made when she was in her, mid to late 20s and this is an album by a 39 year old woman who's been working on it for several years and it, it really does feel like a more mature um revision of of what robin can do yeah carl mm. i didn't know until you mentioned it that she was in psychoanalysis in between it sounds nice right take a break from your career get completely psychoanalyzed and come back and do something else but there's some lyrics from from this song honey um that i think really speak to that kind of contemplative i mean this is just this these are some these are some heavy lyrics for a pop song so listen this is the second verse can you open up to the pleasure suck it up inside like a treasure let the brightest place be your passion can you open up to the pleasure suck it up inside like a treasure let the brightest place be your passion and she goes on to say I got your honey, baby. Let go of your doubt. Say yes. Let it soak up into the flesh. Never had this kind of nutrition. It, right? I mean, it really is about self-care, like explicitly right, right. so. This is not even about it's a like relationship, a even yes. a breakup. It really is about almost uh, being able to feel joy again. Yeah, I think, you know, the the lover that she's addressing on that song really does seem to be herself, most of all. And the, the key line in that song is really fascinating, where she sings... You're not going to get what you want, but baby, I have what you need. It's kind of the opposite of of the Rolling Stones line, right? You you can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need. And it's just, again this kind of elusive thought of of what would it mean not to get what you need, and is it possibly illusory to seek what you need, and is there something else that you can find? And that the, exploring that through this kind of anti-pop pop that Robin's always done feels like a a really affecting and effective um, approach. All right. Well, Carl, before we, uh, before we lose you, can you pick out uh, maybe a pet favorite from the new record we should go out on? Yeah. Um, my favorite song on the new album is called um, Because It's in the Music, which is kind of a meta pop song. It's a song about songs. It's a song about sadness again, but it's about um, listening to a song that reminds you of a moment or a person and um, being driven to play it. Um, even though it breaks your heart every time. And of course, like all such songs, um, it becomes one of those songs in the course of discussing that song. It's funny, it starts with a reference to Stardust. The first lines are, um, they wrote a song about us. It's called something like Stardust. 
And on the day they released it, same day you released me, even though it kills me, I still play it every night. And so it's this kind of flex at the beginning to say Stardust was written about you, the 100-year-old um, American stand- songbook um, standard, and then gradually to absorb the idea of, of songs like Stardust and songs about songs and um, bring it onto the, into this kind of very um, Donna Summer-ish um, light strings and disco pulse um, music. And yeah, I, it's, it's one of the ones that I come back to again and again. They wrote a song about us It's called something like Stardust All right, well, Carl Wilson is Slate's uh, music critic. Carl, as always, a total pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys so much. Blank Check is a very, very, very fun podcast on the pretty small chance i think that there are listeners of ours who don't know it and don't listen to it you should absolutely check it out uh it's hosted by david sims and i'm gonna uh, david who's your co-host i'm sorry that's fine uh griffin newman actor and comedian griffin newman is my co-host uh and you're gonna do it better than i can so why don't you tell people what the premise of the show is uh sure so it's uh basically a, it's a film show about directors that uh looks at directors who got a blank check quote unquote from hollywood uh, that allowed them to make sort of a big crazy passion project or some weird uh, expensive movie that defied the usual rules of blockbusters. And we sort of look at the arcs of their career movie by movie and see like if the checks, uh, if they cash or if they bounce, that's sort of the joke premise. And, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, always in the middle of some director's filmography, but uh, you can sort of go back and pick any director you like, really, that we've covered in the past. But when you do a director, you do their entire filmography? We do, because the arc of the career is is part of the fun. Like, you know, the sort of the early things that maybe get them the Hollywood attention and then the, the big splashy things that either get them more attention or uh, put them in Hollywood jail or whatever. Uh, okay, so uh, give me an example of a classic episode of your show. Director who you know, sure. had the big hit, got the blank check, and what would, what the arc was. We just did Ang Lee, uh, who is fun because he, he just absolutely cannot confine himself to a genre. Like every new movie, he's doing something that he's never really worked in before. And even when you put him in like a, you know, even when he makes a superhero movie, he made his Hulk it's this bizarre Freudian like sort mm-hmm. of experiment, like rather killer than, poodles. That's all I remember. <sighs> what a movie that is! Uh, Hulk, Hulk, two thousand three. We and, uh, we both think this is like a totally fascinating movie, and such a and it's only gotten more fascinating as the like superhero genre emerged after it. This is the kind of movie you get to make when you direct a foreign language film that makes one hundred twenty million. For sure, right? Exactly, and yeah. that's like the blank check phenomenon that you and I talk about, which isn't just like. Oh, I made a hit. It's like, how how did that work? Right, you did something that on paper would never go. Right, so yeah. the studio just has to give you money because they can't rip you off. They're and, like, they've figured something out. We need to give them another at bat. And beyond that, it's like they can. They'll even give you a property like this one, a right. beloved comic book character. Right, and you're um, you know, say, uh, I'm going to do these classic things. example. Our, our first uh, director that we did was M Night Shyamalan, who uh, after a couple false starts, he gets uh, the sixth sense. He makes this big movie that is this unexpected hit and uses the capital for that on increasingly sort of like staggeringly strange projects like Lady in the Water and The Happening, these these spectacular kind of failures that uh, were entirely like from the mind of visionary M. Night Shyamalan, who had this sort of crash and then rebound now, uh, making these little cheap horror movies in which he has... He made this movie Split last year that he decided to make a secret 
make it a secret sequel to his old movie Unbreakable. Like he's the 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 the, the classic sort of uh, up down up again arc. But uh, he's know, gotten a whole book of blank checks. That yeah, guy. he he really did. And but then there, there I mean, uh, one of my favorite miniseries that we did was on the the Wachowski siblings, uh, who again, you know, broke out of the gate with the Matrix and made these very expensive, very strange movies like Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending that... That have a hardcore fandom. That do. Among I, 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 people. I'm, I'm fond of them that, that are smuggling all kinds of strange ideas into very, very, uh, like, summary blockbusters. And uh, I, I hope they, I hope they come back. They just shut down their their uh, production office in Chicago. But, you know, they're, they're a classic example. Uh, so give us an example of someone who... Made the hit, got the blank check, and made a masterpiece. The obvious boring candidates like Christopher Nolan or James Cameron, you know, who only sort of go up and up. Like they, they, you know, Christopher Nolan makes Memento, uh, gets on, that gets him on the map. He makes the Batman movies, that gets him more on the map. Then he starts making his movies, like his Inception or Interstellar, these movies that he obviously like has always wanted to make, and that only gets him more on the map. Right, they're, they're not weird, quirky, Right, there are some that are projects. just a, giant a, a straight up bar graph. I mean, I always, uh, one uh, director we did this year, Paul Verhoeven, to me, is a very fun example of a total weirdo who just sort of accidentally makes these huge hits, Robocop and Basic Instinct, and and uses that to make like absolute lunacy on a Hollywood scale. I mean, Starship mm-hmm. Troopers being the sort of the oh, apex so of that. Good. Right, so good, so right. good. And what about directors you haven't done? There's some oh, there's obvious so candidates that you haven't talked about, Quentin Tarantino being one. Sure, yeah. There are a few uh, sort of major American directors that we have avoided. Tarantino, the Coen brothers, David Fincher, who are obvious, you know, example Like they are exacting filmmakers who demand high budgets and work with big stars, and so they get to do what they want. But they're a little less fun sort of career arc-wise than than some of the people we've talked about. So you want somebody we to like have a patchy career, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it's a way for us to just talk about movies and talk about directors and things like that and be very silly. And my, you know, my co-host is a, is a comedian and an actor and he's got his sort of side of the business that he's looking at things from. But, uh, you know, also it is it is funny how Hollywood, to, to, to think about how Hollywood works and how it is mm-hmm. always works. Do you talk about the business angle much? I mean, given oh, that yeah. we just talked about We're, Orson Welles and, and searching for studio funding and independent funding, do you totally. do you look into sort of the production history of each movie the, you talk about? Yeah, especially like a stranger movie like Ang Lee's like Billy Lynn, uh, Billy Lynn's Long right. Halftime Walk, which... Uh, was shot in this absolutely extraordinarily bizarre format. That What's the number of the frame rate? 120 frames right. per so second. Right, so it's double the Hobbit movie, which already was it's, it's utterly like triple the Hobbit looking. movie. And um, <laughs> did you see it? Did you see it? In the, no, like, I've seen the Hobbit movie, and I never want to see anything in that format again. The, it's like looking at a, you know, when you're looking at the screen, it's like there's no screen. It's like you're looking through a giant window at people, like at giant people. It's very, very strange. I just, I don't need to get to know actors' pores <laughs> that well. You, you get to know them. You can see the veins in their face in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that does, and I guess this is less of a problem in something like Billy Lynn because it's a sure. realist movie, but in The Hobbit movie, it made all the props look really right. fake, that right? Was, that was the so issue So like Gandalf's the s- staff or whatever, you can just tell that it's made of resin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, just, and you can tell the dwarves. It exposes the artifice. Have fake noses. Way. Yeah, no, I think in Billy Lynn, the, the, the idea was that he's experiencing life in this sort of hyper real way. He is so traumatized by the war. That was, there was artistic value to what he was doing. It just was a very strange viewing experience, but we like, we like talking about stuff like that and the box office, things like that, you know, the things that guarantee you the next check or, or not. Right. It's a, I mean, it's a great idea for a podcast, but um, in part because it's not an obvious idea for one. Sure. What, what, I mean, what about that specifically coughs up to the surface, you know, unique insights into the way Hollywood works and what movies end up, you know, being? Well, for one, there's the obvious insight as we keep going on and try to find new directors that most of the directors who get these blank checks are are men, obviously, the way Hollywood works in that way where... Uh, one's crazy, tormented, genius sort of uh, persona often can be sort of bonded to one's uh, like you know male genius uh, persona, and uh, which other side of the wind is another. Uh, there's another tie to that, but um, so like you know when we we did a Catherine Bigelow miniseries because she was she was sort of one of the only women who's worked on the the biggest scale that we like to sort of talk about, and uh, and uh, it's amazing how much Hollywood. 
uh, will put certain directors, quote unquote, in Hollywood jail. So what are you calling Catherine Bigelow's blank check movie or movies? Well, she made uh, K-19 The Widowmaker, which is the the first $100 million movie made by a woman. Wait, so no one remembers that movie. It's absolutely uh, so insanely boring. But uh, her no, her blank check to me is that now she, at least for a couple of movies, she made like a three hour epic about... Um, you know, torture, <laughs> right? And and it was a huge hit, like things like that, like that. Yeah, Detroit Zero was Dark a hit? Thirty. No, Zero Dark Thirty. I'm talking. Yeah, and then she makes Detroit, and that wasn't so much of a hit. But she right now she seems to uh, command. It's the people, the directors who can command uh, a studio to just make whatever whatever it is they want, rather than mm-hmm. like work within the more usual confines right. of how Hollywood right. works today. And is there any kind of fruitful generalization to make about? whether constraints, especially budgetary, um, or lack of constraints make for better popular art, or is it just so case by case? I'm, I mean, I'm in, it it would sound very lame for me to say that I'm in favor of constraints, but constraints can be good, you know, and pushing against a, uh, a studio or a producer or something like that. Uh, or in the case of television, which we we don't really cover TV much, but in case of television, I feel like sometimes I'll be watching a show and thinking, this could have done with some constraints. You know, this could have done with someone mm-hmm. saying, like, this has to be 22 minutes long, or, the, you know, you got to get to the plot faster uh, here. Nodding vigorously over sure. here. Sure. Um, and in movies, sometimes, I mean, think of Orson Welles, like almost any movie you watch of his, except for Citizen Kane, you're watching with the the narrative in your head of like, oh, he was, you know... He was fighting against this studio or he was trying to get this in there and he couldn't or he had to cast Charlton Heston as a, as a Mexican guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those narratives are part of so many movies that we love. And uh, it's it is it is interesting to, to consider them like, you know, even Starship Troopers like he's he's sneaking ideas past you. And it's fun. It's fun to watch any director do that. Right. Or right. past the past the, the censors or past the editors or past. The Have you producers. done Soderbergh? Love to do Soderbergh. The only issue with Soderbergh, who I would love to do, is that he has made a gazillion movies. Like there mm-hmm. might have to be some editing with him. But every little weird project is is more delightful than the last. At this point, he has his own blank checkbook. He really right? does. I mean, he just does his own. He's off in his own world. And he also right. is. He he tries to do things th- that are not done. Like he tries to market movies in weird ways. Like um the uh the the movie he made last year the 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 um, NASCAR. Oh yeah, Lucky Larry. Um, luck, what the hell was it called? Uh, Logan Lucky. Yeah. There we go. You know, he he made that for pretty cheap uh, after getting some stars together, and he tried to sort of like do this unusual marketing campaign where he focused the trailers in places that Hollywood usually ignores, and it didn't really work. But it's sort of it's sort of fun to consider someone who's like, you know, d- is the formula a bad idea? Like, can we release movies in different ways? Like things like that. You've done Peter mm-hmm. Jackson, of course. No, he's but he's on the list. I mean, we got to do him. The only problem with him is you got to do six. <laughs> Lords of Rings, <laughs> you know, with increasing diminished returns. But yeah, we do like, I mean, the franchises can be fun to sort of. Actually, sort of Peter Jackson with. has a project that's supposed to come out this year that seems really interesting. Know, some War sort War of thing. colorized documentary of World War One footage. Yeah, that seems pretty cool. Mm. Uh, so I can't not ask you about this because for years I've been working on a project derived from the book. Final Cut by Stephen Bach, which tells the story of the demise of United Artists because they wrote one single blank check to the director, Michael Cimino, uh, as a consequence of him having won so many Academy Awards and universal accolades for The Deer Hunter. It's the kind of ultimate blank check story. Have you guys done it? No, I mean, those... uh, Heaven's Gate, as you say, is the ultimate blank check, for sure, both in scale and in... uh, the af- the disastrous aftermath right in 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 sort of the the impact it had uh i'd love to do him he's also got a fairly short and sort of arresting career uh william friedkin is another of those the those you know the new That's hollywood guys yeah. are the guys who sort of invented this concept where right. like the studio system was sort of breaking down and they would make their big movie like friedkin makes the, you know the exorcist and french connection or chimino makes uh, Deer Hunter, and then they're like, "Great, I'm going to do what I want." And like, he, like Coppola's Godfather was that Coppola, for him. Coppola, he considered absolutely. it a pop player. I got to make this damn mafia film right, so I can them, make the conversation. Right, right, right. And you know, and then sometimes like you'll get Chimino going off and uh, blowing you know tens of million do- dollars in the West, and you'll get uh, Friedkin making Sorcerer, and it's 
one of those things where like more and more money is being thrown at this project that absolutely will never be commercial. And, uh, but I, and I just, I love thinking about those and I, I'm sure you do too, Stephen. Oh my gosh. Endlessly. All right. Well, uh, the podcast is really cool. It's called blank check. Uh, check it out. Um, all right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, since I headed off our Orson Welles has a new movie segment by saying that I don't really regard The Other Side of the Wind as an Orson Welles movie, I feel like I should endorse Orson Welles' actual last movie as a director, which if you haven't seen it and you are fascinated with him as a figure, it's a far superior movie to The Other Side of the Wind qua movie. And uh, and it also is the thing that he wanted to make. It's called F for Fake. It was made in 1973, and it's his only real documentary. I mean, calling it a documentary is a little bit of a stretch because, like The Other Side of the Wind, it's this very nested, meta, crazy movie that's all about, you know, its own making and it has these kind of tricky mirrors that it draws the the viewer into. But it is about two real art forgers, and it's about art forgery in Europe. It's from a period when... Wells was living in Europe and is largely shot there. And it's really hard to describe what F for Fake is, but it's just a movie that is really fun to be drawn into and fooled by. And also Oya Kodar, Wells' late life lover, has a big part in, in F for Fake as well. So if you want to kind of track what he was doing during those years, it was actually made right in the middle of the period, 1970 to 1976, that he was shooting the other side of the wind. So when he wasn't running around cajoling the Shah of Iran to give him completion <laughs> funds for one movie, he was churning out this other little 88-minute documentary that is just really a gem, F for Fake. And you can see it, sadly, on Filmstruck, yeah. soon not to exist. Oh. You can also rent it on iTunes and uh, and find it out there in the world f for fake by orson wells i wasn't aware of um how many movies he left um incomplete at the time of his death the documentary goes into it i mean there are a bunch merchant venice um the couple others that looked really intriguing one that someone says essentially done and it was just an act of perversity not to finish it I mean, if nothing else, I would love to see a documentary, a really well-made documentary that incorporated that footage without claiming, you know, that it was turning it into what it was meant to be. Sometimes you just want a documentary to be a little more boring, like as much as a, yeah. like Morgan's Neville is doing all this, you know, uh, energetic stuff. Like sometimes I'm just like, can you just tell me exactly what it is that we've got here? Yes. Because I actually am just fascinated for a factual kind of read. Exactly. Well, there's a, yeah. there's several talking head moments where they talk to Orson Welles' daughter and she's right. never identified as his daughter. You have to put it together from. It's context and then look up what her name is and i know he's trying to avoid being the boring documentarian who slaps the name up there but come on give us the name right be be boring agree david what do you got Uh, i guess i will after uh slamming the netflix movie though i will speak up for the netflix movie this week which no one seems to like except for me uh which is outlaw king in which chris pine plays robert the bruce even though chris pine is chris pine is not a scottish uh man and he might be an odd choice for the hero of Scottish independence from the 13th century. It is kind of an amazing movie by a Scottish filmmaker, David McKenzie, sitting everyone down 20 plus years after Braveheart and saying like, can can we finally acknowledge that, you know, that movie was full of it and like this whole process and the process of liberating our glorious country was muddy and nasty and horrible and brutish. And, uh, it's a bit of a grueling watch, I guess. Uh, I saw it at, at the Toronto Film Festival when it was two hours and 20 minutes long. It's now two hours. Uh, apparently, he uh, watched the cut and was sort of like, okay, I can, I, can, I can slim this down a little bit. But I think it is kind of a fascinating uh, rebuttal to uh, the sort of stirring Celtic heroism movies that were especially popular in the 90s. And uh, I don't know. I'm a fan. Oh, my God. You had me at Chris Pine. One of our standing slogans here at the Slate Culture Gab Fest is the Pine Stands Tall. We love Chris Pine love and all too. that he does. He's very gruff and brooding. You know, he's he's brooding in this one. It's a lot of brooding. It's a brooding time. Chris Pine brooding. Uh, I'm there. <laughs> the Pine Stands Tall. Uh, I don't think I ever signed off on that. The, Julia and I. I think Julia and I coined I it. I love Chris Pine. I think possibly you did. All right. Uh, I'm going to go low and then go high. Uh, I want to do something. I When we first started doing the show and the concept of endorsements was suggested to us by Andy Bowers, I think it was really open-ended. And, the, and the, I think the question was whether you might even thumbs down something or single something out for a you know, corruption or vacuity or whatever. And very quickly, we I don't think we ever did it. I think we just determined that a show uh, 
built around three snobs sitting around chitting on popular culture was probably best to go out on a high note, you know, uh, as a little bit of a sweetener at the end. Um, but I now want to, I, I now want to do it. It's the first time I've ever done this. I, I have to single out something for being just uniquely corrupt and inapt in our particular moment and just terrible, which is, and it's also a sort of revocation of a previous endorsement. I once endorsed the um, introductions to Penguin classics are typically beautifully written. The person writing them has been selected with enormous care and they tend to be very intelligent essays that stand up on their own. And maybe they even deserve to be published um, uh, separately in separate volumes. Uh, some division of Penguin thought it was a good idea to bring out an anniversary edition uh, of uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, uh, Gulag Archipelago, obviously a hugely historic work in the history of the moral imagination, and give the task of introducing it to, any guesses? Snooky. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it just, the buildup, I was like, better, who could this better, be? Better Snooky than Jordan fucking Peterson. Oh. Oh. I mean, that is such a fuck up. That is such a fucking fuck up. You can't. <laughs> and and people have be, be, uh, begun excerpting like some of his more outrageous, I mean, comments, you know, sweeping generalizations that literally an eighth grader with Google could tell you in under 10 seconds are untrue. I mean, they don't pass a laugh test to begin with, but if they got past the laugh test, you can just disprove instantly. And um, why mar a work like this with this lowbrow, manipulative, sub-fascist, you know, demagogue idiot. But I don't even get I don't even get the thinking right, there just, like what's the connection maybe right. if it was something some sort of work of like mythology or something right isn't he really into like creating your own mythology or I something but he, a, a memoir from a gulag yeah. what does that I have to do for, with first, first of all they just want to move units right sure. that is they, they, they believe they can now sell and they're probably right like multiples hundred, you know a hundred times more copies, maybe a thousand times more copy. And then and I'm sure I know what people like this say to themselves as they f fall asleep, which is, you know, better that a million people read Solzhenitsyn than only a thousand, right? Like if the price is that there are some whopping sub-fascist generalizations in the introduction, it was worth it. Well, fuck that. That's bullshit. But um, I think the thinking is that Peterson represents this kind of, you know, setting aside all of the you know, uh, pseudo-Darwinian idiocy of it and and, and Jungian uh, mythomania of it, you know, he's basically, at the end of the day, he's like very much a Steven Pinker style. You know, if you understand science, you understand that, that free markets are the height of, you know, uh, human civilization and that they think, whoever the fucking idiot editor was who approved this, they think that that represents kind of the, you know, opposite of a Stalinist or Gulag-based you know, a uh, socialist system or something. I have no idea, but it's a fucking horrible, outrageous decision. And it's the only time I've ever done this, but seriously, from the bottom of my heart, fuck you to the idiot who did this. <laughs> um, uh, but now let's go out on a slightly, uh, let's go out on a sli slightly nicer note. Uh, there was a blackout in Ghent, New York over the weekend, uh, pitch black. The whole world goes so dark uh, in, in a place like Ghent, New York. And uh, we lit a fire in the wood stove. We lit a ton of candles. And um, and um, my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, for whom this was complete agony, and therefore, of course, I loved it. It was like so great. No screens, no nothing. Um, she had this little portable speaker that's battery-powered, and I was able to Bluetooth up to it with my phone. And I put on a jazz album called Long Ago and Far Away. It's a Charlie, I think a posthumous Charlie Hayden record with the pianist Brad Meldow, M-E-H. L D A U. And I'm endorsing both it because it is a sublime, it's such a deep mood, ethereal piano jazz record. It's great. I, I mean, I cannot tell you how it works on me like a fucking drug. But it was, it was also shutting everything else down and out. Was it was it was just it was such a zen. It was so amazing just to have. I mean, I know. Dana, you've said this over and over again, and I've ignored it every time about the technology Sabbath every Saturday or whatever it is you do. But it was something about just no lights, candles, one piece of music that you're going to listen to from beginning to, to end, and you're not going to multitask, and you're not going to let screens invade this moment that you're having with one another. And then, of course, the lights pop back on, thankfully, after about a half an hour, but they pop back on, and like we all retreated to our fucking screens. But it was... 
it was really amazing. So anyway, the album is called Long Ago and Far Away, Charlie Hayden and Brad Meldow. Uh, we'll post it on our site. Um, you too. Two film critics. I got through, I got out of here alive. I talked about <laughs> movies with two film critics. Uh, and you didn't even give us a slap like Susan Strasberg right. gets as Pauline Kael in that movie. <laughs> uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm very excited to have discovered your, I'm a huge fan of your criticism. And now I'm, oh, I'm a fan of your podcast. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's yeah, it was really awesome. exciting. It was, yeah. it was good. Come back, please. And oh, of course, Dana Stevens. Oh, Thanks, Dana. Happily come back. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed, it's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Uh, our production assistant is Alex Barish. For uh, Dana Stevens and David Sims, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 